So we began a series on the biblical view of politics. We considered um, the, the wrong theological views that are there uh, within the church. And then we considered the relationship that is there between the church and the state. Um, and then last week we considered political involvement. How should a Christian involve themselves in politics? To what extent? And today I want us to look at the biblical view of politics and the heading this morning will be on citizenship. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21. Someone can read that. So we know clearly that Paul was a Roman citizen. But in, this, in his letter to the Philippians, he says he's a citizen of heaven. So did Paul value his Roman citizenship? The answer is yes. Especially when you read the book of Acts, when he uses his Roman citizenship to defend himself so that he's not flogged. And so our citizenship, our commonwealth, to which we belong is in heaven. First Peter chapter two verse eleven. So someone can read from verse nine. From verse 9, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. So this is one of the examples in First Peter where the saints are referred to as sojourners and exile. So throughout this book, if you read, Christians are called aliens, strangers, sojourners. And so when we talk about citizenship, the first thing we really need to assert without any ambiguity is that we are citizens of God's kingdom more so than anything else. That's the first point as we consider citizenship. We are citizens of God's kingdom more so than anything else. As Christians, that is something that should be very crystal clear to us. We are citizens of God's kingdom before everything else. And so as we try to define what it means to be citizens of God, I like to define it under three points. The first point is our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. In heaven, the kingdom of God. The Bible says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, Colossians 1.13. And so our primary citizenship in heaven takes precedence over our earthly citizenship. And our heavenly citizenship takes precedence over every other kind of loyalty we have here on earth. And so our citizenship in heaven relativizes 
puts all other loyalties in subjection to it. Because for a Christian, whatever country he may belong to, whatever citizenship he may belong to, citizenship in heaven does not erase the citizenship we have here on earth. Rather, citizenship in heaven makes our citizenship here on earth to be absolute. And that's why, for example, we don't have a Kenyan flag here in church. Because putting a Kenyan flag here, it will send the wrong message. Because there are no two equal loyalties. We have one supreme loyalty, and that is to our king who rules his kingdom. There is no loyalty except to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all other loyalties are subject to the loyalty of Jesus Christ. And so our citizenship in heaven comes first. And then secondly, to define what it means, we have a distinct worldview. We have a distinct worldview. And so just as Paul was a Roman citizen, we are Kenyan citizens, but we must view our citizenship through a biblical worldview. I'm a Kenyan citizen, but because I'm a, I'm a citizen of heaven, I view my Kenyan citizenship through the lens of biblical worldview. So there's no division between citizenship in the kingdom of God. I don't have a view that I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, and so I operate under certain ethics when I am operating under a citizen of God's kingdom. And then maybe tomorrow I'm a citizen of Kenya and I operate under different ethics. No. We view our citizenship here, on, here in Kenya through the lens of God's word. And so our citizenship in heaven should dominate every act of our citizenship on earth so that when you go to vote you're voting in the voting booth you go there as a Christian you involve yourself in politics as a Christian and so we are citizens of God's kingdom more so than anything else and it means our primary citizenship is in heaven it means we have a distinct worldview and then thirdly it means that our ultimate hope is not in our country but in heaven our ultimate hope is not in our country but in heaven let's turn to hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 to 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 to 16. Someone can read that. Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16. This Paul died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are speaking that they are speaking a wrong land. If they had been thinking of that, sorry, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. That therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. So he's talking about the believers in the Old Testament. And <clears throat> it says that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then he says, for example, Abraham <clears throat> saw the promised land which God had given him. And that promised land, though it was a land flowing with milk and honey, it was not his ultimate home. Because it says there, verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity 
to return. He was looking for a city in which the builder and the maker is God. If he was looking for a country, he would have gone back. He was looking to a heavenly country, says that. And so, as peaceful as Kenya is, Kenya is not our ultimate home. It's not our ultimate country. It's a heavenly country that is the ultimate. And then the second thing I'd like us to see, so the first thing is that we are citizens of God's kingdom more so than anything else. And then secondly, I want us to consider the attitude towards our country in which God has placed us. So secondly, our attitude towards the country God has placed us. So if we are citizens of heaven, what is our view towards how we ought to rightly see our earthly country? We are not people who say that this life does not matter. We don't say that all that matters is heaven. Yes, heaven is our ultimate home. But you realize that God has placed you here on earth for a purpose. So we are not of the mindset that we do not care about the culture in the world. So what is the right perspective of this present country that God has, has placed us? And so I'd like us to look at two passages, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, someone can read from verse 24 to 26. Acts 17, 24 to 26. Acts 17, 24 to 26. The God who made the one and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself is all mankind made and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Yeah, so verse 26 there, speaking of God, and he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You know what that means? It means that God is sovereign over the boundaries of the nations. Is not only sovereign over the boundaries of the nations, but is also sovereign over the habitation of the nations. And so did any one of us, before we were born, maybe while we were in the mind of God, did any, any, any of us put in a request to God that you wanted to be born in, in the US or in the UK or in Canada or in Somalia? or in the Arab world. None of us got to choose the place of our birth. God is absolutely sovereign. And so, if God chose for you to be born here in Kenya, I believe you should be profoundly grateful because if you look at the nations around the world, we are not the greatest nations, but we have so many privileges that other people in the world do not have. And so God has determined those boundaries, those habitations. Whether you are born here, whether you will migrate to another country, the point is where you are, the sovereign decree, God has sovereignly decreed that you be present there. And so often we have little appreciation of the privilege of being born in this nation. Second passage I'd like us to see is Jeremiah 29. 
Someone can read from verse 4 to 7. Jeremiah 29, 4 to 7. Jeremiah 29 is part of the book of consolation. So the book of consolation was written to a group of Jews who had already been exiled. So they'd be taken from their homeland Israel and are exiled in Babylon. And so this is what God tells the exiles. That they should, in spite the fact that each and every of us has a natural affinity to their homeland they have been removed from their homeland by the decree of God and God is working his will in spite of their captivity and so they are in a country in which they are not their own and so if if you are a Jewish zealot for example you, you are nationalistic you hated other nations you believe that your nation was the best and you read these words in Jeremiah 29 it will, it, will, it will not make sense to you and so these are exiles, strangers, aliens and God is telling them in verse 7 but seek the welfare the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord sorry and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. You should labor for the shalom of the city God has blessed us. Because in its shalom, you will have shalom. So Acts 17 and 29. What do we make of these verses? All of us, in one way or the other, have affection to our earthly homeland. We have affection to the tribe we were born in, the place we were born in. We have a natural affinity to be patriotic. And we, we must acknowledge that it is God who has put me there. God, by his grace, made me a citizen of Kenya. And from scripture, you should labor for the shalom of your country Kenya because in the shalom of your country Kenya you shall find your shalom you shall find your welfare and so we're not pietists who deny the goodness of this present world we don't have the worldview that says that this world is full of junk and our only hope is heaven that's not the way we should view the world we should have a biblical view of this world and so, in spite of the fact that the world to come is tremendously greater than this world, this present world is still a blessing to us. This world, though it is filled with war and misery, there are a lot of blessings, there are a lot of joys and happiness. And so this present world is worthy of our care, since it is the very nation God has placed us. And so we should labor for God's glory, for the good of our neighbor, for our children, for our children's children. In spite of this crisis that we have as a nation, do you realize that this is the country in which, if the Lord tarries, your grandchildren will live here. Your great-grandchildren will live here. And so for the love of my neighbor, for the love of my family, I should seek the good of my city of my town in which I live in 
but we have to see it first spiritually and then earthly and so it is right for us to to love our nation to see it as a blessing from the almighty god and then thirdly what should love for the country look like what is biblical citizenship how should we love our country and the first thing is we must have a sense of gratitude for the blessing god has given to that country we must have a sense of gratitude for the blessing god has given to that country in order for us to have a sense of gratitude we really need to understand the history of our nation for example If you compare the life 100 years ago in this country and what we have right now it should give you a sense of gratitude this freedom this religious liberty this bill of rights the separation of the church and state as a country we don't have a church start our foundations are founded on religious liberty so you should be thankful for the freedom that you have you should not wait <laughs> when the freedom are taken away for you to appreciate the freedom that you have thanks be to god we are not like china like russia where there is no freedom where there is socialism and communism and so you look at our history as a country not everything is good but you should be thankful to god that our country did not go as other countries the second thing to help us see how we should love our country the second thing is that we should mourn for the sins of our nation we should mourn for the sins of our nation the psalmist says my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law psalm 119 verse 136 our hearts should mourn the sins of our nation if we are people who love this country we should mourn over the corruption the family breakdown the immorality the very principles in the word of god that are defied every time by god We should mourn that we are here worshiping God but there is a lot of evil that is going on out here as we speak. We should mourn over everything that is unbiblical, everything that is wicked. And that is why you should not separate being a citizen of heaven and being a citizen of this country. Being a citizen of heaven should enable you to look at your nation through the lens of God's word. We should mourn over our legislature over our executive the decisions that they make will affect you will affect your children will affect your grandchildren so if you love your country you cannot help but mourn for the sins of your country and so what does the love of your country look like you must have a sense of gratitude for the blessing god has given you in that country you should mourn for the sins of your country and then you demonstrate the love to your country by submission to authority romans chapter 13 please turn there i'll read from verse 1 romans chapter 13 verse 1 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad will you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you'll receive his approval submission to authority yes there's a place of civil disobedience when 
the civil authority does not uh, sorry when the civil authority disobeys god but civil disobedience is an exception it's not a rule christians are not rebels we are not anarchists we don't flaunt the law because we don't agree with it christians are to submit to the law and so if we love our country we should be citizens with moral convictions and those moral convictions come from the word of god we are not blindly obedient to everything that is said to us our moral convictions come from a biblical worldview and so you have in scripture the example of daniel telling king nebuchadnezzar in daniel chapter 4 verse 27 i'll read daniel 4:27 therefore O king let my counsel be acceptable to you break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity daniel tells nebuchadnezzar to break off from your sin and pursue righteousness and he does it respectfully he tells the most powerful leader in the world at that time and that requires boldness why because if you see that you have a higher authority than the government you have a higher authority than the church you'll submit to that higher authority you'll be bold and courageous you'll not fear we have the example of John the Baptist he tells Herod in Mark chapter 6 verse 17 to 20 he tells him that it was unlawful for him to take his brother's wife we have the example of Paul the apostle he talks to Felix in Acts 24 and he talks to him about what about judgment the judgment that is to come and so if we are to be christians we are to have a biblical worldview we have to have moral convictions that are grounded in scripture and so we should stand firm in our convictions so that when our culture does not agree with our view of life if you the only one in your workplace who believes that people should not people should not take bribery you should stand firm in your conviction you should stand firm regardless of the opinion of the culture the opinion of the society the latest opinion polls because you have god on your side so we are to believe the bible we have no choice but to believe in the written word of god the bible says marriage is between a man and a woman we are going to believe that it's between a man and a woman as it says in genesis we're going to stand firm in those convictions so moral convictions should compel us to resist evil and to work for justice the fourth way in which we are to love our country is to be a citizen of moral influence to be a citizen of moral influence so you're not only a citizen of moral convictions you're a citizen also of moral influence you're the salt of the world you're the light of the world the salt meaning you're a moral preservative the light means that you illumine the light of the gospel and so we are a shining light as 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 colossians says in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation and sadly this is an area in which i believe many christians do struggle we struggle to exercise an influence a moral influence in the place where we are in we fail to fight corruption sadly christians partake partake in bribery we ought to be of moral influence for good 
as much as we have our civic duty we have a moral responsibility to God and as we've seen there's no distinction it's my Christianity that shapes my civic life it shapes my civil conviction it 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 shapes my civic influence it's my Christianity that makes me want to have an influence in this world an influence in this nation so allow me to ask you what other ways do you think you can be a citizen of moral influence what examples do you think as a citizen of this country you can have a positive moral influence on the society So having a moral influence in your workplace, for example, as Simon is saying, being a hard worker, being punctual at work, what other way could you be of moral influence to the society that you live in? to them the gospel change changes people changes their moral life and so you ha- you're having a moral influence upon them so you're doing your responsibility hmm. anything else yes teaching children about moral issues, um, living uprightly, how they should live uprightly in this society. Yeah. You are having an impact on the next generation. Yes. In terms of calamity, mm-hmm. um, being, being ready to help, for example, mm-hmm. they are those who are When you participate in communal activities, you want you want to have a positive impact. It could be a football match or just a game you're participating in, but you want to show hard work, to show discipline, to show integrity in everything that you're participating. And so you love your country by demonstrating moral influence on it. And then fifthly, the way to love our country also is engaging in service. So there are all kinds of service in serving our nation. There's military service, and that's a noble thing as a Christian. Do you have anyone in the Bible who was in the military, who served his nation in the military? Anyone? Yes, David is a paramount example. Yes, anyone else? Yes, yes. Uh, all the 20 and above men who are in Israel. So that's general. Yes. Yes, in the nation of Israel, uh, all men were required to serve in the military. 
unless maybe you 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 are not you are paralyzed or you had other uh, physical incapacities another example is gideon for example so we can serve our country in the military service we can serve our country in the political arena this is a valid means of serving your country so in scripture do we have christian politicians politicians who are saints who are biblical yes nehemiah we have the example of daniel daniel approaching <coughs> daniel was second in command and he approaches nebuchadnezzar telling him of his sin we have the example of joseph these people were high up officials and they served with honor and distinction before God. Clearly, it's 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 hard to believe that there could be political service for the glory of God. And that's because we distrust our politicians. There's a lot of wickedness in the political arena, and it's easy for us to cry and to whine. There's this corruption and fail to engage ourselves in political service to our nation. We have other examples of police officers, teachers, nurses, doctors. Many are devoted for the service of their country and many have made an impact on their country. So before we look at the sixth point, praying for our country, anything you'd like to to ask or say make a comment on yes sorry military service yes So how are fathers who are in the military able to do their Christian obligation to their children, to their wives? I've seen an example of military men moving with their families. So if you're posted in Nanyuki, you move your family to Nanyuki. If you're posted in, in, in Lanet, Nakuru, you move with your family to Nakuru. Then that's one way. Uh, but you, you have the problem, or, or you have the question of if you are sent to Somalia for two years. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a career that, um, that is unique in its own way. And... Um, you could say it is a work of a work of necessity because you have to protect people and you have to keep away evil people so Then they, they go and stay with their families, yeah. and then they go back. Yeah. And 
then because of the nature of that job, its uniqueness mm. um, uh, and its necessity to the the the, the nation, mm. then <coughs> all opportunities for for worship on the Lord's day should be taken by the Christian officer. All opportunities for uh, being with his family, uh, whether physically or Agreed. Um, I agreed. You, you, you look even in our military, there are chaplains. There are Christians there, and uh, you can meet to worship with them. You can meet to fellowship. So it's 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 not. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're secluded from your church, but also as Pastor as Pastor Eric is saying, there are Christians in those uh, in those in those military. Uh, work in the military work. I'm not sure whether that is helping. Anyone can make more contribution to that question? Okay, we can look at the sixth thing. How do we love our country? We love our country if we pray for our country. So is there a biblical warrant for you to pray for your country is there a biblical warrant is there anywhere you commanded to pray for your country or to pray for your leader specifically anyone yes Rono. yes first timothy chapter 2 you can turn there First Timothy chapter two verse one to four. You could read. So we show our love for our country if we pray for our country. And one way of praying for our country is to pray for our leaders. That's the first thing there. We pray for our leaders. We pray for kings and rulers. And the Bible says here that what might happen so that we may lead, verse 2, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So pray for your leaders. Pray for those who are in authority over us. Pray for our president, our deputy president. We pray for the president we like. We pray for the president we don't like. We pray for the governors, senators, local officials, the chief, county commanders. Pray for people. God, in his providence, has placed in position of authority. And so we pray for our country if we pray for our leaders. And then secondly, we pray for our country by making prayers of confession and repentance. I pray for my country by asking God for forgiveness. There are national sins that we as a people of God need to confess. So you read Ezra chapter 9, you read Nehemiah chapter 9, you read Daniel chapter 9. Those are prayers of a nation made by men on behalf of the, of the nation of Israel. And so we should be confessing the sins of our nations and we should be repenting. And then thirdly, another way to pray for our country, this is a bit controversial, is to pray imprecatory prayers against evils. Is to pray imprecatory prayers against evils. You probably heard of imprecatory psalms. These are psalms in which the psalmist calls on judgment against God's enemies. And for the most part, churches have ignored these psalms. Some people feel that these psalms are not biblical. Some are embarrassed to read them publicly. 
I want you to understand something. That it is righteous to pray against evil. It is righteous to pray against evil. We have to understand that there are people in places of authority, even in our country, who want to do evil, who want to shed innocent blood. They're willing to do everything to get power. And so there is so much evil in high level, high level of authority, and that evil is an affront against God. And so when you pray, you're praying that God will remove wicked people from office. We should pray that God will save them. But if God doesn't save them, that God will remove them from those, of, uh, those positions of authority. Let me ask you, will we be better off as a nation if the wicked are removed from power? The answer is yes. We'll be better off. So there's a way we should pray the imprecatory psalms. Yes, we pray that we desire that they may be saved. But if they are wicked, that God will remove them from those positions of authority. And then fourthly, we pray for our country by praying for the advancement of God's kingdom. We pray for our country by praying for the advancement of God's kingdom. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See, Paul had this burden for his people, that if it were possible for him to be cast away, for him to be accursed, for him to be separated from God eternally, just for his people, to be saved. We should be praying that God will bring an awakening to our nation, will bring a revival that this nation today we export a lot of doctors and nurses and other professions that God will bring awakening that we send missionaries to enrich places like Somalia that God will raise biblical churches that the gospel will be the heartbeat and so we need to be on our knees more and more because we know that our only hope is God. In the 1720s and 1730s, England was on the brink of collapse, virtual collapse. There was moral degradation, there was abuse of children. Young children were put to work. It was a nation on the brink of collapse. And do you know what saved it? It was the great evangelical awakening of Whitfield and Wesley. You see, God spared that nation because of the awakening. And God used men like Whitfield and Wesley who preached the gospel. And the gospel transformed the lives of people. And the culture was shifted to become more godly. You read of Wesley, and he's, he was not writing in everything. But in his theology, insisted on, on hard work, on discipline. And Christians began to work hard and to be faithful. And we're told that even the middle class in England today exists because of that. So what do we need more than anything else? We need God to bring an awakening in this nation. We need to pray like John Knox, God give me Scotland or I will die. Do, do we ever pray like that? God give me Kenya or I will die. Do we ever pray for God to save this country? You may say you, you focused on heavenly things. If you focus on heavenly things, you should know that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then I'd like us to see the warnings and the counsels warnings and counsels and so my first question is can I love my country too much is it possible for you to love your country too much and the answer is 
yes your country can become an idol so three ways in which you can tell that you love your country too much the first thing is if i feel that i have more in common with someone because we are kenyans more than we are christians i love my country too much if you're a christian and you feel that you have more common sorry you're more common with a christian in somalia more than a pagan who is in kenya it shows that you do not love your country too much as a christian you should seek to find a deeper common bond with a christian who confesses christ in uganda more than your fellow colleague who is a pagan so shared common cultural values they are all fine they are all good but if you're a person who gravitates towards people because they are simply kenyans more than you gra gravitate towards believers you love your country too much john piper says never feel more attached to your fatherland or your tribe or your family than you do to the people of christ everyone who is in christ is more closely and permanently united to others in christ no matter the other associations than we are to our nearest fellow citizen or party member or brother or sister or spouse oh how many horrible indignities injustices contradictions of christian of christianity have been perpetrated because believers have failed to realize this we are more bound together with other believers no matter their ethnicity or their political alignments or their nationality than we are to anybody in our own fatherland end of quote then secondly we able to know we love our country more than we should if my concern for my country eclipses the concerns of other nations in terms of missions and the persecuted church so if you care so much about your country more than caring about the christians in nigeria who are slaughtered you hear of villages of christians being wiped out if you care too much of your country more than you care for those christians you love your country too much if you care too much about your country and fail to recognize the christians who are persecuted in korea in china the kidnappings the rapes you love your country too much and then thirdly uh, this is meant to pierce you the third point if political issues consume me and squeeze out the means of grace if political issues yes it's a it's 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 a political season we should follow the elections but if you watch the elections and you follow what is going on in the political arena at the expense of your means of grace and you presume that that is nationalism that is patriotism that it is okay to substitute that for real spirituality you see there are christians who are so much consumed with the political world they have no time for the means of grace they don't read their bible they don't come to church they don't pray you see it's better for us it's better for you to tell us a lot about the book of jeremiah than to tell us what is happening right now in the political stage so should you be informed of what is happening in the political arena absolutely but that should not supersede the love for the country sorry the love for god and then lastly what of christians who disagree with each other politically so what of christians who disagree with each other politically this is not a moral issue this is a political issue i don't think there's a room for christians for example to support a leader 
who promotes the, for example, the LGBTQ agenda, for example. If we are Christians, we should not disagree on moral issues. If we are Christians, we should disagree, probably, on political issues. So, for example, you have Simon the Zealot, the disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a Jewish nationalist who hated Rome. He hated everything about Rome. He was the most anti-government person you could get. And then you have Levi, the tax collector. And guess who he worked for? He worked for the, for the Roman Chiare. You could imagine, within the disciples of Jesus Christ, those two were, were, were extremes. Because one was seen as a traitor, and the other one was seen as, as a nationalist. But Christians, we should have a charity, we should have a latitude with those who disagree with us politically. I know, I know it's hard, but, but, but you have to politically dis uh, differentiate issues that are emerging from a biblical worldview. But there are issues, there are political issues that are uh, a hot potato, that, that we are not always on the same page. And so, what if you get really angry with the state of your country? If we are saddened by the state, by the direction of our country, what leaders are doing to our country. I'll read a quote here by Robert Dabney. He says, When angry passions rage in every heart, dividing brother against brother in Zion, when unscrupulous haste precipitates multitudes into words and acts of injustice and wrong, agitating and defiling their own consciences and provoking the whole tumults of resentment on either side, what room is there for the quiet and sacred voice of the Holy Spirit? It has been remarked by wise historians that a time of political conversions is a time of giant growth for all forms of vice. And just to that degree, it is a time of barrenness for the Christian graces. So when you are angry at the state of your country, you are anxious, what should you do? You should remember that God reigns. He absolutely in control. He's the king. There's not a single thing that will happen outside his will. That is why the sovereignty of God brings you peace. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Why God will allow some things to happen. But we should be reminded that God reigns. Even in the midst of chaos and confusion, Everything is unfolding according to his counsel, of his will. And everything is to his, his eternal purpose. And you should not be afraid. When you are afraid, Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. When you are anxious and angry, pray to God. Pray and trust his sovereignty. So everything may be falling apart, chaotic, violent. But you look to God. You look to God because this world is passing away. And so as Christians, how do we show our love for our country? By being thankful to the country God has given us, firstly. Secondly, by mourning for the sins of our nation. Thirdly, by submitting to authority. Fourthly, by being a citizen of moral influence. Fifthly, by engaging in service. Sixthly, by praying for your country. How do you pray for your country? You pray for your leaders. You pray for, you, you offer prayers of confession and repentance. You pray in precatory prayers against evil. You pray for the advancement of God's kingdom. Heaven is our ultimate hope. And we must realize that every sphere of life, everything is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.
We pray that these truths will be firmly uh, built up in our hearts. Help us to have moral convictions about godly things. We pray that you will help your people to see that as much as we are citizens of heaven, you have placed us here on earth for a purpose. And we pray that you will enable us to love our country in the way that we should. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.